Amen. Morning, church. Morning. I don't know what I think about that response, guys. That was a little, I'm nothing wrong with that guy who's like needs to be louder, but that one, that one got me. That did need to be better. Uh, I'm just kidding. I love you guys. What a joy to be together. We are continuing, actually finishing out our series today on the glory of God. Uh, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, we've been working through this series, talking about the doctrine of glory and why that's important for us as believers today. Uh, and at, man, I just, I don't know about you guys, but I hope, I hope this has been as much a blessing to you guys as it has been to me, taking time reflecting on this. This has been something that for me has really spoken into just my, my prayer life during the week in terms of how I consider Christ and consider him in my, my day-to-day faith. And, and I hope it's been something similar for you guys. There just is, there's just something that's just joyful, right? About coming together as brothers and sisters to just celebrate how awesome Jesus is. And I know like that word is kind of like, yeah, but, but like for real, like just how, just how awesome he is. The last two weeks we've dug into this in just various different ways. We started out talking about the glory of God using this, this Hebrew word, the glory of God as the weightiness of God, the grandness. We talked about uh, just the immensity of God and his glory next to our smallness, our finiteness, and how this brings about naturally what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, right? And then last week, we talked about God's glory as an expression of his holiness, his set-apartness, and we talked about this perfection and how it sits next to our sinfulness and rebellion, right? We looked at Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God, and we considered this idea of how Jesus is the one who makes a way for us to be moved from sinfulness and fear to enjoyment and forgiveness, right? And ultimately, this all comes down to we've just been talking about the gospel story from a different perspective. We've been talking about how good God is to us as his creation. You were built to enjoy him. Sin made that impossible, but Jesus makes it possible again right? Like what, what an encapsulation of the gospel story. Oh, today we're going to end the discussion. Guys, honestly, just kind of spoiler alert by saying the same things we've said the last two weeks. We're going to talk about how good God is, how amazing and gracious he is to us, how you were made for his glory, how Jesus makes a way for you to not just be in the presence of God's glory, but to revel in it and enjoy it. We're going to discuss that today from the perspective of God's glory creating assurance and comfort in us. How, how Jesus buys us a place in God's glory and then through that creates this peace for us. He makes it such that you and I can have assurance of your place in God's kingdom. Jesus, beloved, buys you real rest. Rest. Peace. And this rest, this peace, this assurance, this is what motivates the Christian to endure the Christian life, right? The Christian life is difficult. It involves trials and suffering and sacrifice. And it is the assurance of salvation, the assurance of your safety, your place, your identity within the kingdom, within the glory of God that causes us to endure, causes us to stick with it. He is your assurance. He is your peace. Truly, guys, the glory of God is our reward. Amen? So we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 today, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, by the way, if you're in this space that you don't have a Bible with you, we have house Bibles at the bottom of the chair. I'd encourage you to grab one. 
If you don't own a Bible, I'd encourage you to take one. We really believe in the importance of access to God's word here at Emmanuel. Before we get into this text, I wanna put some context around it, kind of catch us up in the narrative. We're, we're in Luke 9, and we're gonna be looking at this story of Jesus' what's called his transfiguration, where Jesus displays the full glory of God to a couple of his followers. Now, what you have to understand to kind of set the story up is we're near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's been traveling around Galilee and Judea, preaching, performing miracles for several years at this point. And the entire time, there's been this growing tension. You see, as Jesus performs all these miracles and he gives all these teachings that, that really bluntly point to him as the Messiah, like Jesus isn't, wasn't the kind of teacher who would just say like, hey, I'm the Messiah, but he would give these teachings that for everyone in the room, like, re, like everyone is like, okay, we know what you're saying right now, right? And so he's doing these supernatural miracles. He's giving these teachings that, that really points to him as the awaited prophesied Messiah who's gonna free Israel. The problem is that Jesus refuses to act how everyone assumed the Messiah would act. I mean, he purposefully antagonizes the religious leaders of the day. Like Jesus goes out of his way to, to kind of like attack and push against the established religious leaders. Like the tension of Jesus' let, let's, let's be honest, like his anti-establishment ministry with the undeniable power of his miracles and his teaching. Like that's the tension. His, his person is pushing against the established norms, but his ministry has such undeniable power that this tension just keeps building and building and building until finally the religious leaders of the day get together and just say, look, we've got to kill this guy. This, this can't keep happening. We've got to kill this guy. Either he, he's going to start some kind of rebellion, he's going to cause Rome to crack down on us and remove the little bit of freedom we actually have, right? And so at this point in his ministry, the leaders of, of Judaism, the leaders of Judea, like politically and theologically, they've already made this opportunity. Now, in that context, our text picks up right around this time in the timeline. Jesus has taken what essentially amounts to a spiritual retreat. Because even though the tension is building with him and the religious leaders of his day, the common people flock to Jesus. It gets to the point where the crowds that gather around him day in and day out are so large and so overwhelming. The text says literally that he and his followers can't sleep, they can't eat meals, because people are just crowding in on them continually all day, every day. So he takes this retreat with his followers. They head north and a little east into this region called Caesarea Philippi. Basically, they head as far out to the edge of Judea as can still be Judea. But they go to an area that is mostly Gentile, mostly Hellenized, very little Jewish religious influence. And they kind of go there just to hang out, to get away, to get some peace and quiet. And while they're there, some really famous and important conversations happen. While they're on this retreat, at one point Jesus just says, what do you guys think? What do you think about me? What do you think about my ministry? What do people say? What do you think? And it culminates in this famous text where Peter just says, you're the Messiah. Like, that's what everything's pointing to. And there's this really beautiful and important shift in Jesus's ministry. Right at that moment, Jesus up to that point, anytime anyone pushes him on the Messiah issue, he deflects. He asks questions, he avoids it, he moves around it. He's not ready yet. But when Peter 
says this in this moment on the retreat. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. He just goes, yep. And he just takes on that mantle. And instantly there's this shift in how Jesus teaches and speaks and engages his people. And he immediately starts telling them, yes, I am the Messiah, but this is gonna look nothing like you think it's gonna look. I'm gonna be betrayed. I'm gonna be brutally murdered. I'm gonna die and I'm gonna raise from the dead. Oh, and by the way, if you're gonna follow me, it's gonna be horrible. Up to this point, He's been sending out his followers and he's like, you're gonna have authority, you're gonna have power, you're gonna cast out demons and they come back like, this is amazing. But here Jesus goes, look, it's gonna be really hard. You're gonna be rejected, you're gonna be persecuted. Terrible things are gonna happen to you. You need to seriously consider if this is something you actually wanna do because it's about to go bad, right? That's, that's what, what sets up the, con- like in, in the context of that retreat, that time away with his friends, Jesus goes, hey, to his three closest followers, Peter, James, and John, come with me. We need to go do something. This is where we're gonna pick up our text. Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 28, we read this. About eight days after this conversation, this is the conversation about counting the cost of following Jesus. He took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. And as the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid, and as they entered the cloud, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent, and at that time told no one what they had seen. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me, church. Jesus, thank you so much for the gift of coming together as a family today. Father, we pray today that you would just take these few minutes of church time, these few minutes that for most of us are just a normal part of our weekly schedule. God, I pray that you would would just kind of shake us to awareness and presence this morning. Draw us out of routine and draw us to a moment of just actual mindfulness and wakefulness to actually hear from you in a way we need. Holy Spirit, give us tender hearts, open ears, else work. We want to be drawn back to you afresh, Jesus. We want to rest in your amazing grace and your wonderful gospel. Draw us to that again today, Lord. We trust you for this. We pray in your name. Amen. So after this messianic shift in Jesus' teaching and relationship with his followers. He's taken his three closest followers up on the top of a mountain and he's transfigured in their presence. This is nuts. This is a relatively famous passage. I, I, I fear that this is one of those texts that, that when we read it, like we get that it's important, but it's also just kind of weird enough that it remains in this mental category of like, vaguely important but strange, right? Like you look at what's going on in this text and you're like, I'm sure those things have significant meaning 
And then you just kind of move past it because you don't really know what they are. And, and that's, there is truth to that. There's a lot loaded in this passage. And I think, I think we miss some of what God has for us when we glaze over these things. And so I'd like for us to take a few minutes today to hopefully kind of dig into this. I'm gonna show you two slides real quick. Uh, one of these is Mount, um, that one is Mount Tabor. And then the other one is Mount Hermon, is that right? So, so these are two mountains that the church kind of argues over whether or not one of these is where they think uh, the, the transfiguration actually happened. And, and, and I'd show you both of these for two reasons. I think it's really helpful to include church history and geography and these kinds of things when we're able to. But, but I think it's interesting with these two things specifically, how much the, the church has kind of argued over which one it is, because it doesn't really make sense. And essentially it comes down to this. Uh, the first, this one, uh, Mount Hermon, this is in Caesarea Philippi. The actual ancient city, Caesarea Philippi, is built around this mountain and the springs that come out of it. And this is where Jesus took his retreat. This is where the previous conversations happened. And so this really makes most sense. But like going back to like the second and third century, the church was really convinced that it was the other one. Uh, and the other one is like several days travel to the south, like kind of dramatically. It seems really unlikely uh, that, that Jesus would have this retreat in this area and then like travel down there and then travel back up so that he could walk back. It's, it, it seems very unlikely, but the church is very adamant about this. And I say that, I share that, and this is kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's important. It's important because engaging church history and those kind of helps is really helpful. They're really beautiful, but I think it's important to remember that they're not scripture, right? They're fallible. They're, they're, they're human resources. The only source of authority when it comes to spiritual truth is the word, right? And the word doesn't tell us where the Mount of Transfiguration is. We, we don't get that piece. And so we can explore and we can think about it. You know, maybe there's something the early church knew that we don't, <laughs> that makes it make more sense. But we have no way of knowing. But regardless, you can see what a mountain in the Middle East looks like. They were near one of those <laughs> and they climbed up it and Jesus was transfigured, right? So let me get back to our, to our text here. I wanna talk about this scene because of how easy it is to dismiss parts of a story like this. So what essentially happens, the entirety of our text, is that Jesus takes his three closest followers, he heads to the top of this mountain, whichever one it was, he turns all glowy, right? He talks to Moses and Elijah. God the Father affirms his messiahship, affirms his authority, and then they wander back down, right? That's kind of the narrative. But, but as you may have guessed looking at it, there are, there are a couple historical cultural pieces that, that give some weight to this text that we can easily just skip over as modern readers. So, so let me put some of those bits of the scene in place and then we'll consider it again and just see what maybe God has for us. The first thing you have to consider when you look at a text like this is the importance of mountains in the Jewish spiritual experience. It was commonly held that mountains were sacred spiritual places, generally speaking. I mean, even God himself appeared to his people with the Mosaic Covenant on the top of a mountain, right? Like he manifested on Mount Sinai and Moses went up to see him. Like that's, that's kind of a common spiritual thing. We looked at that text a couple weeks ago, right? So, so it would have been right within the spiritual understanding of the day for an important spiritual milestone to happen on a mountain. And by the way, Consider Jesus' own ministry. When important milestones happen, he ends up 
on mountains. He goes up on the mountain to preach his most famous sermon. He goes up on a mountain to pray and consider who he would call to be his 12 disciples. He goes up on a mountain to be transfigured. He ends up on a tiny one, but a little mountain to pray right before his passion narrative, right? Like this is a thing that Jesus even incorporates into his own ministry, putting spiritual milestones on high places. It's interesting. Beyond the mountain, there's also the importance of the guests, right? The text tells us that Jesus is joined in his glory by Moses and Elijah. That's wild, right? And I feel like it can really easily just kind of mentally be like, yeah, some important Old Testament people, Moses and Elijah. That makes sense. But you also kind of have to stop and go, but why Moses and Elijah? Like there were other important Old Testament people like Abraham or Israel himself or, you know, Isaiah, the other guy who had the glory vision. Like why is it these two guys? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The first one that I think is really interesting is that these are the only other two leaders mentioned in scripture who physically stand in the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai. In Exodus 33 that we read, Moses stands in the presence of God's glory. Remember, God hides him in the cleft of the rock and like covers his face. And in 1 Kings 19, after his confrontation with uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, another spiritual milestone happening on a mountain, Elijah, in his despair and sorrow, hikes to Mount Sinai and asks God why Israel's suffering so much. And God appears to him in his glory. And Elijah has to hide in a mountain while there's all the things we recognize at this point, thunder, lightning, smoke, earthquakes, right? Like these are the only two guys who, who the scripture records have climbed up on a mountain and stood in the glory of God, right? Not Isaiah having a vision, physically present with them. These are the guys who appear and manifest and hang out with Jesus on top of the mountain when Jesus is in his glory. I think it's interesting. Well, what's cool too is that these guys are also really the, the overarching biblical representatives, like kind of like the culmination of what we would consider the law covenant ministry and the prophetic ministry. Both of these guys were considered prophets in their own right. Moses and Elijah considered the greatest prophets in Judaism. And both of them were, were like advocates, teachers of the law and the covenant. Moses brought the covenant down. Elijah proclaimed the covenant to unfaithful Israel. So there's something about these guys. Not only are these the ones who stood in the glory of God on the mountain, but these guys are exemplars of Israel's relationship with God his relationship with God through the covenant and then his relationship with them through the ministry of the prophets. I think what's going on here is that Luke is letting us know that there is something about Jesus' ministry and his mission that's in line with these men, right? That, that Jesus is standing in the same plan, the same kind of spiritual space as these guys. In fact, Luke, guys, he's really concerned with you as the reader understanding that while Jesus is doing something new, the gospel, he's also doing something old, right? Like Jesus is functioning and ministering squarely in line with the spiritual fathers of old. This is the same gospel plan that God has been working out to save humanity since he appeared to Moses on Sinai and since he appeared to Elijah. It's the same gospel that God is working out. But it's also new. It's also a new covenant. Same plan, same God, same grace, same love. But he is working something new. You see, 
When Moses saw God's glory on the mountain, he had to be hidden, right? God covered him up so that he wouldn't be swallowed up. When Elijah saw God's glory on the mountain, he cowered down in a cave. He hid from it. He ran away from it. Jesus, on the other hand, isn't just in the presence of God's glory. He himself is glorified. You see this? Moses and Elijah had to be protected from God's glory so they wouldn't be destroyed. Jesus is God's glory, right? There is something new about what is happening here. And by the way, this word we read, appearance, his appearance was dazzling white and glowing, right? This is an interesting word. It's interesting because it's a really rare word in the scripture. It's only used a couple of times in the entirety of, of the Greek New Testament and Greek Old Testament. In fact, one of the only other times it's used is in the Greek Old Testament, in Exodus, in God's description of the tabernacle. Now you may ask why that matters, but you have to remember, the Greek Old Testament is the only Old Testament Luke would have had access to, right? That's the the Old Testament he would have studied and read when he was writing his gospel. And Luke is very, more so than actually most of the New Testament writers, Luke is very intentional with his language and his word choice. He uses this word connected to the tabernacle, and there's a reason for this. Remember, the tabernacle was really sacred to the Jewish people. It was a place designed by God himself so that he could dwell with his people, right? This wasn't an earthly temple designed by human hands. According to the scripture, the tabernacle was designed by God and revealed to humanity. It had had curtains and tent walls and ceremonies so that God's people could be in the presence of God's glory but not be consumed and burned up by it, right? It was all about allowing God to dwell amongst his people. That's why the tabernacle existed. It's why God designed it. But look at Jesus. He is God's glory. He's not hidden from it. He's not covered. He's not protected. He is God's glory. And then look at his three friends standing there, Peter, James, John. They're right there. They're standing with him on the mountain. They're watching this happen, and they're not bursting into flame, right? You see, beloved, there's something going on here in Jesus. Jesus is a new and a better tabernacle. His appearance is like that of the tabernacle. He is God living amongst his people. And he's not just God living amongst his people. He's God living amongst his people without his glory French frying us. (laughs) Right? Which is like a silly way to say it, but there's something really beautiful about that. Guys, the reason for this is simply because this, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. If you summarize the scripture into kind of the main headings of the meta narrative, you start with God creating everything, then you have sin destroying everything. But then most of the narrative of the Old Testament, like literally from Genesis 3 on, most of the narrative of the Old Testament is about God making promises to his people. I promise I will fix what sin has broken. I promise. I will be your God, you will will be my people. I promise I will make a way for you. I promise I will live among you. I promise I will forgive your sins. I will, like, God is a promise-making God. And all the promises you see him make throughout the Old Testament, whether it's the time of the patriarchs, the time of the judges, the time of Israel, the time of the divided kingdom, the promises you see God making 
all point back to this ultimate promise, I will fix what you broke in the garden, right? I will make a way for us to be restored, for us to live together as I designed you to live. Beloved, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. It's why all these beautiful little Old Testament imagery seem like they just perfectly weave together to point to Christ. Jesus is a better tabernacle. Jesus is a better Moses. Jesus is a better Elijah. Jesus is God's glory revealed. All these things point together because God has been working this same plan from creation to now. It's all pointing to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the yes to God's promises. He is the prophet. He is the Messiah that Moses and Elijah pointed to. He's the new tabernacle. He's God dwelling amongst his people. Jesus is the bridge between humanity and God. He's what makes the space for sinful us to be with him. And all this, by the way, this puts this just authority on Jesus. And you see the way the Father speaks, right? We get that familiar smoke descending down, the glory of God on the mountaintop, and God the Father's voice speaks, this is my son, listen to him. There's this authority placed on Jesus, on his work on the cross. And we see how it, by the way, we see how all of this helps ground the apostles in the midst of their confusion heading toward the cross. See, we can't disconnect this from the immediate earthly context, right? Jesus is, has, has accepted the mantle. He is the Messiah. And this is like, this is it. It's happening. This is what his followers have been waiting for. But he immediately tells them, right? The Messiah isn't anything you think it's gonna be like. It's very different. I'm gonna be betrayed. I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna resurrect. You are going to suffer for following me. None of that was within the mental category of how the apostles understood the Messiah. They understood the Messiah to be a new King David who was gonna come and raise up an army and overthrow Rome and establish Israel as an independent, autonomous nation again. They weren't looking for someone to forgive their sins and give them eternal life after they died. They were looking for someone to give them like a better tax bracket, right? So Jesus says, this is not how you think it's gonna be. This doesn't work the way you think it's gonna work. And so they're super confused, as you would be, Right? This is not anything they've been taught their whole life. This is putting their theology, their faith on its head, but they're seeking to trust him. And, and what happens is these guys see Jesus' power, they see his glory, and it sets them on the path. It, it pushes, it keeps them in the work, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of the craziness of it. Because here's the thing, guys. Here's, here's the catch to this whole thing tabernacle, God dwelling amongst his people. This has always been God's plan. Always. Go back and read, read this book. Read through the narratives of the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the constant refrain of Yahweh to his creation. This is the continued cry of God as he interacts with his people. Beloved, tabernacle, God dwelling with us, that is the language of covenant. It's all about God being with his people. This has always been the plan, and Jesus fulfills this. He is the full glory of God, right? He's seated on the mercy seat in Isaiah's vision, lighting the seraphim aflame with his holiness. 
He is the full glory of God, but he is also our friend. He also hangs out with us and loves us and shares meals. God's design for life is ultimately that we would live with him, right? It's that we as humans, we as his creation, would participate in his glory. That we would not be destroyed by his glory because of sin, but that we would revel in his glory and find our deepest joy, our deepest fulfillment and our intimacy and connection with him, right? This is the, the path Jesus makes. So we had talked already about this Hebrew word for glory that you read in the Old Testament, but the Greek word for glory that we actually get in our text here today, I think is, is just as instructive for us. It's this word doxa, and it, and it simply means that something has intrinsic value. Something that has doxa in Greek is something that has value for its own sake. Doxa is something whose worth is self-evident, right? Now, back in the 300s, uh, St. Augustine wrote about this principle a little bit in a way that I think is helpful for us. He has this book called On Christian Teaching that was like a training manual for young pastors written in the 300s, which is nuts. But, but he builds on this idea and he kind of he digs in this idea. He says, everything in existence can be divided into two categories. And, and according to Augustine, these are things that can be used and things that can be enjoyed. That's his two categories for all of reality. Things that can be used and things that can be enjoyed. Now, it's important to understand here, he's not using this word used the way we would use it in a sense of like manipulation, right? Like how you might use another person. Rather, in Augustine's use of this term, use, he means that a particular thing, is ultimate purpose points past itself, right? It's something that, that does not self-terminate. Something to be, to be used is something that points to something else. It has use. The example I like to think of is how tortilla chips exist for the purpose of moving queso from a bowl to your mouth. Amen? This is, this is tortilla, listen, tortilla chips are fine. They're fine, I guess. But if you're just sitting there nomming on a bowl of tortillas while there is queso and salsa at the table, you need to speak to your elders. This may be a church discipline offense. And at minimum, you do need psychiatric intervention, right? And we can all agree on this. Things that exist primarily to point to something else, in Augustine's view, are things that are, that are used. Things to be enjoyed are things that are an end in and of themselves. They need not be used because they don't need to point to anything else. They're simply to be enjoyed for what they are. This view, by the way, of use and enjoyment was actually a common view in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Pluto's philosophy, or Pla Pluto, Plato's philosophy. Like This is a re really common thought in Platonic thought. Augustine takes it a step and submits it to the gospel and says, yes, this is true. Reality can be divided into things to be used and things to be enjoyed. But the reality is there's actually only one thing in all of reality that can be enjoyed and that's Christ. Everything else is to be used. Everything else in Augustine's view is to be used because Jesus is the only thing in reality that doesn't point to anything beyond himself. Everything else exists to point one to Jesus. This is, this is what the Bible means when it says doxa, glory, self-evident worth. Jesus' glory is intrinsic, self-evident. He is enjoyable. 
His, en- his enjoyableness is self-evident. And, and anything else that you experience in life, anything else from the best to the worst, from the most intimate, amazing love, parent, child, spouse, whatever, to the most terrible suffering, it all exists to point to Christ. It's insane. I love that idea. The rest of life, the rest of reality outside of Jesus is helpful because it points us to the glory of Jesus. Beloved, we, we necessarily, necessarily forget Jesus when we enjoy things made to be used. We necessarily, and I'm, I'm using Augustine's sense of the words here, right? When we take creation and we rest in our enjoyment of creation, we're doing what is called idolatry. And, and hear me, guys, this isn't to say that the things of creation aren't beautiful and wonderful and enjoyable in their own right. But it is to say that when created things become an end in and of themselves, it means they're distracting from Jesus rather than pointing to him. Guys, love is wonderful. It's wonderful. I hope you all experience deep abiding love with others. Friendship love, like romantic love, all of the above. It's wonderful. But we know that love exists to point to Jesus. Nature is beautiful. I hope you experience it. I hope you go to beautiful places. I hope you, you sit in the grandeur of creation and see your smallness. But creation exists to point to Jesus. Marriage is wonderful. If you're already married, if you feel called to marriage, I hope you experience it and experience it to the full. But marriage exists to point you to Jesus. Children are a wonderful gift from the Lord. I love my kids. They're such a gift, but they exist to point us to Jesus. Beloved, take your pick, art, a good meal, music, sex. There is no, there is nothing in this world that is so truly wonderful, so truly wonderful that it can and should be enjoyed simply for its own sake. When we take things created, things meant to be used, things meant to point them to Christ, and we put them in the place of Christ, we put our ultimate enjoyment and rest on them, we put an unbearable burden on them. Unbearable. When you take something created to point to Christ, and you ask it to fulfill Christ's role in your life, you crush it. You crush it. Your marriage cannot possibly fulfill you like Christ. Your love cannot possibly fulfill you like Christ. Your care for your children cannot possibly fulfill you like Christ. Fill in the blank. Nothing created has enough glory in and of itself to sit on the throne of your life. You can put it there. We do, we all do, but you crush it when you do so. That, that feels like, an, uh, it feels like honor, right, to take your spouse or your kids or your friend or whatever and put them on this pedestal in your life. That's not an honor. It crushes them. They can't fulfill you. Those things are wonderful. You should enjoy them. They're beautiful. I hope you experience them to the fullest, and I mean that. But God made them to point to him, to point to his glory. The glory of God is the only thing that has enough weight that has enough doxa to actually sit on the throne of your heart. And guys, we all do this. We all forget about Jesus because we put other things in the throne of our life. Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. Think I love Lucy, the chocolate's coming on the conveyor belt. Like that's 
how the human heart makes idols. We spit them out. We look for things to put in Jesus. We're bent toward it. I guarantee, even as I was sharing those things, that was offensive to some of you, right? To have me just bluntly dethrone idols in this space, to say things like your spouse, your love, your romance, your children, your family, those things can't be of ultimate importance in your life. Like, that's painful to hear, right? It's painful because we make idols of those things. Because we're bent toward idolatry, because we'd love to take the, crea- the created things made to be used and put them on the throne of the creator who's, made, who's, who's there to be enjoyed, right? We naturally do that. We're all bent toward making idols and the cure, beloved, the only cure to idolatry is to simply remember Jesus. Because to, to give in to idolatry is to unavoidably forget Christ, right? If everything in your life exists to point you to the glory of Christ, but you stop here on this created thing and you're not letting it point you, it necessarily brings you to forget Christ. And by the way, we know that intrinsically. Think about your life over the last seven days, right? Think about getting up on Monday and going to work, going to school, engaging family, engaging all your tasks. It is incredibly easy to forget about Christ, right? Like we're talking about this, like several of us have probably spent time forgetting Christ in the last 45 minutes since we've been in this room singing songs to Christ, right? It's very easy to forget him. And it's unavoidable if you're putting things on his throne. Like that's what happens. So so the solution to idolatry, the cure to this problem is to remember Jesus. Remember him. Because here's the thing, guys. He's actually that good. He's actually so good that to approach him afresh is to enjoy him afresh. Like that's how the glory of God works. You approach it afresh, you see it with fresh eyes, even in the midst of your stubborn idolatry, even in the midst of your habituated sin patterns, even in the midst of your shame and avoiding put, like, seeking him out, even in the midst of not wanting to let go. So like, in all those things, to approach Christ afresh is to enjoy him afresh. That's how good he is. When you see him again, you cannot help but remember how good he is. Beloved, this is our sweet Jesus. This is, this is our Lord, the lover of our soul. He gives us assurance of our place within reality in spite of sin. To approach the throne of Christ afresh, to see his glory afresh, to experience his love, his grace, his forgiveness afresh, to realize that even even as you approach him with a wrong heart, even as you approach him going, Christ, I don't really want to talk to you because I don't really want to repent of this. Even as you approach him with an armful of idols that you're waiting to shove him off his seat and stick up there, even as you approach him going, hey, Christ, don't poke at this area of sin because I'm not going to repent of it. Even as you approach him with your, like your, your unworthy heart to approach him, his response is still the glory of Jesus. Love, grace, patience, forgiveness, assurance. To remember Christ is to enjoy him afresh period. Because you see, the ultimate end of humanity is eternity in heaven with Jesus swimming in his glory forever. That's where you're headed. And guys, that future, that future is guaranteed. There is assurance in the glory of Christ. Because when you approach it, you're reminded, 
My sin is not as strong as his glory and his grace and his gospel. My rebellion is not more powerful than his promise. To approach the glory afresh is to be reminded afresh of your assurance. But here's the thing, guys. Even though that future is assured, it's guaranteed, it's also not yet, right? It's also not here yet. Here and now, our enjoyment of Jesus doesn't mean hiding away in a Christian bubble. Eventually, you'll be in eternity. Everything will be restored. All sin will be gone. You'll be living in perfect relationship with Christ, just sitting, hanging out in his glory forever, loving every minute of it. But guys, that's not yet. Right now, you still exist in a sinful, broken world. And right now, you don't get to hang out and hide away in a Christian bubble listening to worship music all day long. Because remember our text. When Peter experienced the glory of Jesus, what was his reaction? He wanted to set up tents and hang, right? This is great. Let's set up some tents and keep doing this. This is really cool. Because of course that's his response, right? He got tapped into his eternity for a second. He got a taste of what his forever was gonna be like. Basking in the glory of Christ living as he was created to live. Jesus showed him his glory, but he gave them him that experience of his forever so that they could go back down the mountain. And if you keep reading the text in Luke, they step directly back into an absolute mess. They wander down to find that the crowds have found them on their spiritual retreat and are hounding the rest of the apostles. And there's this guy with a demon-possessed son and the rest of the apostles are going, oh no, Jesus, oh no, oh no. We kept praying over it, it's not working. And the dad's going, yeah, what's wrong with your followers? Why can't they cure my son? Like they walk into this chaos immediately after this scene. And when they go on from there, it gets increasingly worse. The pressure keeps amping up and amping up as they make their way from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem where Jesus will be betrayed and killed and things will get really dark really fast. Jesus gave them a picture of their forever, gave them a taste of glory so that they could step off the mountain and step back into the work of the kingdom, right? Because that forever is guaranteed, it's assured, but it's also not here yet. Here and now, we're living in a sinful world, joining with Christ in his work to seek and save the lost. The glory of Jesus, beloved, gives us the assurance, gives us the peace, gives us the rest, gives us the enjoyment so that we can actually step down into the mess of this world and this life and follow Christ in the midst of our hardship. Like, the assurance, the glory of Jesus, the doxa of Jesus gives you the foundation so that you can actually pursue Christ in this life here and now where it's really hard to do so. Where you can face suffering and loss and injustice and pain and hurt because you know where you're headed. So, to land us out today, we're left with a really simple question. Do you enjoy Jesus? Like, is Christ enjoyable to you? Which is, by the way, is just a way of asking right now, do you actually remember Christ? Do you remember what he's like? Because I guarantee, I guarantee, if you're struggling to enjoy him, it's because right now you're struggling to remember him. Because if you approached him afresh, you couldn't help but enjoy him. He's that good, he's that glorious. He's that self-evident. He's enjoyable in his own right. 
If you don't find actual joy and fulfillment in Christ, in Christ alone, hear this, church. There's no point to the Christian life. It doesn't work. The life of following Christ is hard. It takes sacrifice. It takes pain. And if you don't truly see, truly believe that the glory of Jesus is your reward, then you won't do Christian things. You won't. Prosperity, comfort, tradition, family connection, these are all motivators in their own right to get us to seek to follow after Jesus. And they can get us to set aside an hour on Sunday to go sit in a service or to maybe join a small group or to go serve in this community outreach project. But guys, in their own, they're just not strong enough motivators to keep you working in your faith and resting in your eternity when life gets difficult and painful when your faith actually begins to cost you real suffering, those things won't motivate you. It is only your enjoyment of the glory of Christ. It is only your assurance of where he's taking you. We started this series with a quote uh, from a martyred IMB missionary named Karen Watson. I don't know if you guys remember that. She said this phrase, his glory, our reward. Do you remember that? I wanna, I wanna land us out today with two things. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read us a text and then we're gonna pray. But before we do that, I actually want to lead a, read a larger chunk of her letter that she left to be open in the case of her death. This is just a paragraph in that letter from where we got that quote. It says this. When God calls you, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as I could, as much as I possibly could. That is my heart for the nations. But I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer is expected because his glory is my reward. His glory is my reward. His glory is my reward. Beloved, his glory is our reward, period. And by the way, it's a good reward. <laughs> it's the one you were made for. And it is the only thing, the only thing that will move you through this life, that will keep your hand to the plow when the life of following Christ is painful, when there's real suffering, when there's real cost, it is only the glory of God, the glory of Christ that will keep you moving towards your eternity. Chris, if you wanna come up, I'm gonna invite us to take a few minutes to close today just in prayer. And I want you to ask yourself in all honesty, in prayer, in this moment, just do you remember Christ? Do you remember him? And I would invite you in that question, in that prayer, to do the work of remembering him. Consider your own story. Remember what it was like when you fell in love with Jesus. What were the steps that happened that, that, that showed him chasing after you? How, what were the ways that God used to slowly reveal himself to you, to show his love for you, his grace for you in the face of your sin and your rebellion? Take a mental trip with Christ down memory lane. <laughs> Maybe ask yourself, what would actually have to change in your life today, right now, for you to remember him fully? What are you enjoying in your life right now that you should be using, right? What are the created things that you've made idols of? I'm gonna encourage you to just sit in this prayer for a few minutes and then we'll take communion together and we'll sing and we'll do all that stuff.
but I want to lead us into this prayer with a reading from the letter to the Ephesians. And it just comes down to this, guys. I, it's just so easy to forget Jesus. Our hearts are bent toward making idols. It's so easy to forget him. And I think this little note from Ephesians 2 to kind of get our prayer moving will help us to remember. Ephesians 2, starting in the first verse, says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler or the power of the air, that spirit who's now working in the disobedient. We all previously lived among them, lived in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath, just as all the others were. But God, God who is, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also, he also raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you have been saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from your works so that you can't boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Beloved, take a few minutes and let's remember Jesus.